Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Oh, I just wish I understood why. Why I should care. Look, Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we said we weren't going to talk about the whole University of Austin thing, but, but I mean, I, I, I mean, you got to be fucking kidding, right? Where's your self control, man? Where's your self control? <laughs> I put it off as long as I could. I'll give you this break. So, so yeah, I didn't want to talk about it because I feel we can talk about why later. But really, like, what I don't want to be is part of the problem. But here's where I'll give you a pass. It's in Texas, and I feel like you guys should have a little bit of pride about about somebody just setting up fake shop in your backyard. I mean, we had like we have a lot of that, you know, like like we Elon Musk, you know. Yeah. Um, so we're used <laughs> to that, true. and we're not that proud lately of like <laughs> our state legislature and what their priorities are. So uh, yeah. No, I, I guess I'm. Yeah. I feel a little more defensive of the academic institution as not that i think it's perfect are you, I, I don't us, have any problems with it but oh man were, were are you really just sad that they didn't invite you to be on the advisory board well we were talking a little bit about this before and i just don't think and i really you know i could be wrong i invite them to prove me wrong i don't think there's a, a price they could pay me to be a part of this it's too lame it's it's like it's the lamest thing that they've ever done And that's like a, that's a high bar and it's lamer than that. Like I can't even think of the second lamest thing. Yeah, it is lame. So here, I I didn't want to talk about it because I don't want to fan the flames of a, a, like a culture war that I don't particularly think is productive for anybody. But just talking about this in terms of being a professor, like it's, this has all of the marks of a grift in, and, and I'm honestly this isn't a funny conversation, but I'm disappointed in some of these people for like being on this website, like on the advisory board or whatever. Like Jonathan Haidt, like uh, here's a tweet that he did. Talk about disappointed. I like, you know, I I don't have anything against him. No, I like Here's the most hope giving event in higher ed in years. The launch of Austin U, a new U constructed around the telos of truth. I want my kids to go there. I am proud to be on the advisory board. Now, if I was one of John Height's kids, like that's just like saying <laughs> he doesn't love me. I'm not, I'm not loved by my father. It's like, you know, Brian Cox in succession. <laughs> Could you, I feel like if I even told my daughter that there was a university I wanted her to go to because of the telos of anything, she would just slap me. 
<laughs> oh my god! So I, I, I assume people know what what we're talking about, but yes, but, but let's should, just say for, yeah. um, and we're not devoting the whole opening segment to this. No, and I'm actually a little confused as to what it is. <laughs> right, because it's not an accredited university. Not, yeah. It doesn't exist as a. There space. are no classes there. Yeah, it's not, there's no physical space yet. There are no <laughs> classes. There are no degrees. There's proposed. Well, yes, including in summer of 2022. Maybe this is what John Height wants his his children to go to uh, a course called Forbidden Courses, <laughs> or a, like this is what I mean by it's like breathtakingly lame. <laughs> yeah, Forbidden real. Courses. Real disappointing. <laughs> Forbidden courses will we're talk where we'll talk about the gender wage gap. Maybe not being entirely due to sexism. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it, it, so like yeah. So like uh, I so it will I think it has like somehow an MA. I don't know if it's a real MA or like when I like oh. when I did after college, like uh masters of mixology at Harvard, which was essentially <laughs> me doing a bartending, two days bartending course, and they called it that. So it might be that. I don't know. <laughs> like, um, is it like a real master's? Like, can you give a real master's if you're not accredited? Well, even if it is, it's a master's in leadership, so it's not really. <laughs> okay, let, let's let's say who's who's affiliated with this. Hold on. I'm trying to pull up the... So I looked, I actually looked just before this podcast uh, recording for the first time at the thing that announced it on Barry Weiss's Substack. Right. And that's where they give the list. So our project began with a small gathering of those concerned about the state of higher education. Niall Ferguson, Barry Weiss, Heather Haying, Joe Lonsdales, Arthur Brooks, and I, and we have since been joined by me many others, including the brave professors mentioned above, because they talk about Kathleen Stock and Peter fucking Bogosian. <laughs> uh, Kathleen Scott Stock, Dorian Abbott, Peter Bogosian. We count among our numbers university presidents, Robert Zimmer, Larry Summers, John News. And do you see this ideological diversity just shining through here? Gordon G. and leading academics <laughs> such as Steven Pinker, Deirdre McCloskey, Leon Cass, Jonathan Haidt, Glenn Lowry, Joshua Cass, Vicki Sullivan, Jeffrey Stone, Bill McClay, and Tyler Cowan. And then there's, of course, Andrew Sullivan, Caitlin Flanagan, who has just, just been on a roll in terms of... Ayan Hirsi-Lee, uh... So Rob Amari, Stacey Hawk, Jonathan Roach, and Nadine Strauss, and Rob Henderson. I don't know some of those people. I know David Mamet. Um, yeah, that's what, Mamet. Why David Mamet? You know, I, I great playwright. You know, some right. of, ton of respect for him. Love some of his movies. But this is not surprising if you know his political views. I did. I did not. It's funny that they like. So I, this is what they then say. Our backgrounds and experiences are diverse. Our political views differ. Not really, though. <laughs> Do they differ? <laughs> like, Dude. a little bit, like, on the margins. But this is the uh, God's honest truth. I don't care about the politics. What I am insulted by is the implication that at our universities, we've abandoned the notion of truth and that they are somehow picking it up when it really is just like three or four political issues that they're opposed to. Like it's, it's, it's as if like, you know, genetics research has been going shitty at Cornell because of no, well, fuck you for implying that. Yeah. They just want a place where they can talk about race and IQ, gender differences, yeah. like, yeah. Uh, and that, woke people and woke. You know what there isn't also is any, any anti-Israel. 
Oh, that's not very... like the ideological diversity that they can right. tolerate. <laughs> right, right. The anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, like, you know, that has no place at Austin right. University. Um, did you hear Barry Weiss get a mention in the latest episode of uh, of Curb? <laughs> oh, yeah. But what was it? Was it, was the, it was the Jewy uh, Hulu guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who was who was just like he was just like doing the Jew thing too much for Larry, and yeah. uh, like he was like J to J, and uh, he at the end when Larry's leaving, he's like, Larry, come over to house for Shabbos dinner anytime. We just had Barry Weiss over. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Talk about cancel, like she's like, like she's tried to cancel so many like pro-Palestinian yeah. voices in her time, and the idea that Austin University is gonna have like Norm Finkelstein or something like that, someone who's <laughs> genuinely fucking canceled. Is there gonna be a course like apartheid and Israel? Like, what are the differences, <laughs> if any? Like, that's not gonna be that. That's that's why this is such fucking bullshit. Okay, let me read this. The, the yeah. next sentence: What unites us, in spite of that? The vast political differences between all those people. But what unites us is a common dismay at the state of modern academia and a recognition that we can no longer wait for the cavalry. And so we must be the cavalry. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's, I don't understand. It's, it's like, it's, it's so crazy. Like, I, like I'm, I'm so embarrassed. Like, I would be so embarrassed to be a part of this. Like, I, I said this on Twitter, but it's like the British office where it's funny, but it's also just, like, also hard to watch. The mismatch between the grandiosity versus, like, the reality is just, it's, 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 it's too much. It's a pretty website. Well, um, if, Tamler, yeah. if it receives the support of the people and you can easily go to the support page and yes, uh, right. you, you can actually become, there are like different tiers. That's like their Patreon. You can be a founding, you can give 500 grand to support 10 faculty fellows. Um, wow. You can give 400 grand. Oh wait, this is just how much it's going to cost. Yeah. $3 million per named chair. Uh, twenty-five to hundred million dollars for land in Austin for the tech for the campus. I, I think it's very hard to start a new university at all, and it's really hard if you have ever sat on any committee. You probably have where you have to you have to like get your accreditation stuff in order. Yeah. It's hard, and it takes a lot of energy, a lot of administration, and uh, years. And I don't know that they'll have the steam. I don't yeah. doubt that they can raise the money, but I don't know that they'll have the steam to, to do it. And honestly, I think the future of these kinds of universities is going to be online, mostly. Yeah, I and think that's what it'll turn out to be. Yeah. They're explicitly trying to not uh, be online. They want a physical presence. Right. Um, yeah. But, and I think, like, there's just not enough like students for this. Like, there's, there's not a lot, a lot of 20-year-olds that are going to want to go to this. Uh, I don't think. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess so. Like most of the, <laughs> the demographic that's about like twenty five to thirty five is the one that would really want to go, but they've already either gone to college or either not go, or or not right. gone to college. Right. Yeah. I mean, they go just like because they want to meet whoever P yeah. Peter Bogosian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and look, it's not that because you know you have people. This has received a lot of well justified ridicule and yeah. like. 
it, it deserves more than it's gotten. But um, people have said they are like raising real issues about the uh, academia. And, and, and in some sense, that's absolutely true. There isn't enough ideological diversity on campuses. I think there is a kind of a climate of not fear, but just people feeling like, I don't want to say something that will will get a lot of woke people getting mad at me. Now, I think a lot of that is because these same people have just been instilling so much fear in the professors, you know, these kinds of centrist professors, like just telling them that if they use a pronoun wrong, they'll be um, canceled and 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 before right. some sort of committee and they'll have, you know, get like, or the subject of some title nine lawsuit or something like that. And all that's bullshit. Like none of that stuff, uh, it, it happens, but so unbelievably rarely that it, that it wouldn't be something that a sane person would be living in fear of. But, but, but setting that aside, setting the exaggerated, like paranoia that has been created around this issue, there is actually, a, a, a problem that yeah. they are, you know, that they allude to, even if they don't correctly describe the scope of it. But, but this is not the solution to this in any way. This, any faculty, just any department faculty is more diverse politically, ideologically than that group than of people. Is. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, it seems to have like just the opposite of its intended effect, if the intended effect is to promote, you know, whatever heterodox beliefs are, like it seems to be just pushing people in one direction. And look, like I, I, I agree with you about the exaggeration of the problem and about there being a problem. Like it's not. I know that a lot of listeners, you know, don't email us about this, but but I know that they, <laughs> really they like don't. to argue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know they like to argue about you know how bad the situation is, and and. But I'm not denying that it's like a lot of it is draining and annoying. But like I was telling you on the phone when we were talking last night, I literally have spent more time taking this shitty online driver's instruction course to lower my insurance <laughs> than I have the whole year even sitting on a committee talking about diversity. It's like, not, I, I just haven't. And right. sure, like you could say maybe my experience isn't representative, but don't deny me that it is an experience. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, you know, like when I say that, which is totally true for me, like I don't have to deal with this stuff pretty much ever. And I, I don't know. I feel like we kind of say what we want on this podcast yeah. without getting a lot of shit for it. Um, no, the most shit we get is from the, the, <laughs> the centrists. Ex yeah. Exactly. From these people. Yeah. Like I can't even remember the last time we got shit for like defending Dave Chappelle or something right. like that. But uh like, people can say to me, you know, well, you live in Texas. It's different in Texas. Yeah. You know, like, I get this uh, sometimes. But you're literally at fucking Cornell. You're in the Northeast. You're like at an Ivy League, the elite of the elite kind of institution where this <laughs> stuff, even when they pull back and say, okay, fine, maybe this isn't happening at the University of Arkansas, but it is happening at fucking right. all the, like, really good Northeast and California schools. But it's not. They, even there, it's not. No, it's That's not. the and thing. It, and even in my my city is like extremely liberal, like like uh, alarmingly on the on the left, um, and it's just it's just not. But people don't hear this stuff. Like I, I like I was telling you, there there were faculty members who wanted to do this curriculum where we'd have to t like professors would have to take diversity classes. It went for a vote and it got shut down. 
Like it just, it, but the, that doesn't make the headlines because, well, of course, why would it? it sh- I mean, it shouldn't make the headlines. Right. Um, because but, it's just an internal little thing that you guys had to work out. Right. It's, you know what these, what, what happens is that they're P hacking all of these stories, right? So every day, nothing happens to me about diversity. I, you know, we talk, I want, I mean, I want to encourage diversity. So it's, I'm director of graduate studies. Certainly we have discussions about like recruiting more, uh, you know, uh, having a more diverse student body and diversity in fact, but that's, that's not that controversial. I, no, I think, right. I think everybody <laughs> is, is okay trying to make an effort in that direction, but I don't, I, it's just not most days go by and it doesn't cross my mind. Like it's what not, I, what crosses my mind is like the stress of on my students. Like, you know, uh, the, the, all of the other committees yeah. that I have to be on, like the, Right now, we've had a hard time at Cornell. There was these bomb threats, and then there was a shooting yesterday. Like all that stuff takes up all of my time. I don't. I don't worry that I'm accidentally going to say the wrong thing in class. I don't. When all seems lost, you have to protect the light. Cicero protected it, and John Adams found it. And now, and I are free once again. The light is sputtering out. Join us. Freedom won't die on our watch, David. I'm like, actually curious. I'm actually curious of all of the truths that people think are being suppressed. Like if somebody just wrote them out and posted them, yeah, uh, I would like think? to know. Right. I would like to know what's being suppressed. Is it right. that there is a uh, relationship between race and IQ? I don't think so. I talk about this in Intro Psych. Yeah, it's not uh, like I. I would like to know. Is it that I can't say blacks anymore? Like is is that <laughs> the, <concern>? the blacks? <laughs> yeah, I can know like. I, I don't I'm not trying to make light of this. We all we've been pushed to bitching about these people because we don't have enough material to bitch about the left right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And certainly not in academia. Like if you want to bitch about this and have and 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 yeah. me be more sympathetic, it would be media like Hollywood, that kind of yeah, stuff. Right. Like I, I still think probably the problem there is more exaggerated and maybe somebody who's actually in it could tell me it's oh. actually not that bad. But but from I do know some people who are in it, and they seem like they're a little con- they're concerned about it. Okay, I actually have like here. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually raise something that we'll get to, we'll finally mm-hmm. get back our Sam Harris listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they're it all has, gone already. <laughs> it has annoyed us. It has annoyed me to no end. The uh, amount of TV shows that explicitly try for diversity in such a heavy-handed way as to make the writing unbearable. Yeah. And I love that in the latest Curb Your Enthusiasm episodes, did you notice that the, <laughs> yes. the ne- Netflix offices and the Hulu offices have essentially <laughs> the same the same four people? <laughs> exactly. It's so it's brilliant. so funny. <laughs> I didn't even notice it at first. Like, Eliza had to point it out to me because, like, you know, like, she's already, like, more attuned to that stuff. But it's so funny. And I love that. For, it's just funny that it's in the Netflix office. Like, right. the, 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 those <laughs> yeah, people. That they look- but then it's also in the Hulu office. <laughs> the Hulu just office. So Logo and everything. Yeah. Like, I really, I really want to be privy to how they got that that arrangement made. Because the the gag is that there is, in both cases... Like the white guy is the head of the meeting of the head of the network. And then there's three people on a couch that are sort of say a couple of words, but they all represent some, you know, in one case, it's like a handicapped black woman and like a <laughs> queer person. And some, you know, I don't know. It, but yeah. it's like it's it's so, so on the nose in the funny kind of way. And again, you know what? Nobody's 
like nobody's saying cancel fucking curb your enthusiasm you know like i think even there there's some self-awareness about like right. yeah it is a little like that isn't it and nobody <laughs> yeah. i haven't seen a single person bitch about that right i um yeah maybe at some point we should talk about this there is the the growing divide in rotten to, not the rotten tomatoes should be how you judge things but yeah. the growing divide in rotten tomatoes critic scores and audience scores and what that says about that's more concerning to me than all of the university bullshit that people complain about but you know what like people are saying like i i, I won't ever know if this is true but the eternals suffers from this people say that why the last man that adaptation of a graphic novel oh, series. I love that, that I, graphic novel. I, I, yeah, and I actually read that graphic novel. Yeah, also yeah. like it. People say that those both of them got derailed by um, by the uh, wokeness. By yeah. the wokeness, and you know, I don't know. I haven't seen yeah. either of them. Sounds plausible though to me, uh, uh, to some extent. Although there's a lot of bad. TV shows and movies. And <laughs> right. So, right. Uh, right. so like, yeah, to so me, bad writing is bad writing. There, there is a yeah. difference between having characters who, um, incidentally happen to be black or gay and, yeah. and announcing them as like in this sort of just a heavy handed way as like the gay one. Right. <laughs> but I, I like, I want to stress that this is not like, it's not like that in <laughs> academia to anywhere like if you are somebody even like because I've I have friends that I've been talking to this about and like the perception they get from from like just reading the Atlantic or 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 this bullshit and the substacks they subscribe to is nothing like how it is on actual college campuses. And that's true both for, you know, like the University of Houston, which is a great, I love it, one of the most diverse and wonderful universities in the country, but, you know, not somewhere that people could call like, you know, woke, uh, a woke enclave. Uh, but it's also true even in Cornell and just, it's just not like that, you know, with the possible exception of certain departments or maybe yeah. certain whole colleges like Hampshire or something like that, where they've always been like that. Yeah. And, and, and look, people like people will always be able to find something like, you know, there was, there are mockable moments mm -hmm. uh, like the, the class that somebody taught here, co-taught on whether black holes were racist. <laughs> so don't send me those articles because I know, like I know, but it's just really like, believe me, believe me. Like, I, <laughs> like we I, live it. We're actually like live it. You yeah. can't tell us that what we're living, this is our lived experience. Uh, yeah. And you know what? There are definitely cringeable and, you know, like the woke moments. There are th examples they can bring that are really just, oh, that's bad. That's that, that's ludicrous. That's lame. But nothing as bad as as we can no longer wait for the cavalry. That's the that's so yeah. we must be the cavalry. It's histrionic. Is what <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's like uh, it, it is it is so dramatic it's so <laughs> dramatic that all of the pictures of the founding members are in black and white <laughs> and, and, and it's just a collection of drama queens that want to be able to talk about race and iq that's too 
you know, I was telling you that Cicero, who I've read a little bit of, is also a little bit of a drama queen. So in some ways, it is kind of like appropriate. In the spirit. In the, in the spirit. spirit. Cicero. But Cicero, at least, was kind of forced to commit suicide by the Romans and so actually had to die for it instead of just resign from a position because right. he, they couldn't wait to be, because the <laughs> institution wouldn't fire them, so they had to just resign. And, and I hope his I hope his suicide was glorious. <laughs> he wanted it to be. Uh, all right. We weren't going to talk about this. <laughs> this this segment is didn't didn't happen. Should we even talk about what we're going to talk about? <laughs> save it. Is this I think enough? we should save it. We've, this is enough. Yeah. All right. Uh, but I do have something funny to to, yeah. to do. But we'll we save that, for, that for another time. <laughs> all right. Obviously, we didn't talk about like the main <laughs> right That's already right. We never so got what are past we talking about David? we're talking about uh built on a uh, recent we're we're talking about a recent article called why evolutionary psychology should abandon modularity but i think the conversation will be more broadly about modularity and and psychology and what it is this is not necessarily something that would be a forbidden course but uh, well it, bor- <laughs> it borders on <laughs> You know, evolutionary psychology. That's true. Some, I feel like sometimes they they're just out to justify gender differences. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we have some forbidden course material coming up in the next segment. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by one of our favorites, GiveWell.org. You know, donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act, but how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? The first question all students ask when you teach Peter Singer. <laughs> you could stage do, one. Stage, stage one. Stage one. Singer stage one. You could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, what programs they run, how effective these programs are, and how the charity might use your money. Or you could just visit GiveWell.org and there you'll get a short vetted list of the best charities they've found at improving or saving lives per dollar. Yeah, GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations. Like I said many times, they are spreadsheet nerds who are dedicated. They've dedicated their nerdiness to to finding these charities. And they only recommend a few of the highest impact evidence-backed charities they found. 50,000, over 50,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. We're proud to say that the Very Bad Wizards listenership really kicked this off you know really we take credit for for, yeah. <laughs> for this we, we have like over two hundred thousand of those dollars yes, come that's from right. our listeners yes our generous listeners so rigorous evidence suggests that all these that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more and here's the best part give well is absolutely free they want to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free. No sign-up required. You could say that they're open science, but without the attitude. <laughs> they allocate your tax-deductible donor. <laughs> they allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut at all. Yeah, and when I give to give well, at least the last few times. I've um, chosen um, of their, I think, nine charities that they vetted, cash transfers for extreme poverty. 
This is a, a, a charity where um, they just give cash to very poor families, mostly in Africa, to spend as they like. And these participants uh, make investments in business and agriculture assets, housing and education. It is very cost effective and um, it helps people living in dire poverty who live on less than $3,700 per year. That's right. Cool. I, I use the uh, the cheat code. Basically, I just let GiveWell pick the top charities and allocate my money accordingly, uh, which is really the lazy man's way out. But but I trust GiveWell to do this. So so I just set it up uh, for for the top charity picks and, and let them do what thou wilt with my money. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here's here's something cool. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year as long as matching funds last. $250 um, will be matched of your donation as long as matching funds last before the end of the year. So to claim your match, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter very bad wizards at checkout. Just once again, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter very bad wizards at checkout. Make sure they know you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards to get your donation matched. Thank you to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we like to take a moment and pause and thank everybody who has contributed to the community, contributed to the discussion, contributed to our morale, really, by uh, just supporting us. And and one of the most important ways in which you support us is you you talk to us, you email us, you contact us, you engage in discussion with us. If you want to be a part of that, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at Tamler or at Pease or at Very Bad Wizards. You can engage on the lively discussions in the cantankerous fuck group of Reddit, uh, the reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards, where you can listen, uh, read some like-minded criticism of us often. <laughs> <laughs> some and group, some like group think talking points that yeah. just smear us every once in a while. Um, <laughs> the one exception about how we love to receive your emails concerns our opening segment topic. Uh, yes, don't email us about this week's opening segment. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can follow us on Instagram, uh, where where you can 
see the release of every episode, um, you can please rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you listen there, we always appreciate getting those ratings, getting those reviews, especially when they're good, uh, five-star reviews. Um, but yeah, that helps us also get seen, hopefully, by other people who might not know about us. You can listen to us at Spotify, subscribe there, and just tell a friend who has any sort of similar sensibilities as you, if you like it, tell a friend to listen to us. But thank yeah. you for all the ways, yeah, that you yeah. reach out to us. We really, really appreciate that. And if you would like to support us in more tangible ways, um, you can find all the different ways at our support page on the website. Um, you can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. You can um, get some merch, some pretty cool merch, some mugs, some T-shirts, hoodies, baby bibs, all sorts of things. Um, and you can become one of our Patreon supporters. We love our patrons. We try to put bonus episodes up um, somewhat regularly. We just put one up recently on Pine Barrens. And we have some other ideas coming up for this holiday se season for episode ideas for the bonus episodes. Um, that's at the $2 and up per episode. At $5 and up, you get to vote on a topic um, for um, one of our main segments. And actually, I think we're about, it's, we're about ready to open that up, get some ideas from all our patrons, and then have our $5 and up um, supporters vote on it. $5 and up people also get Dave's intro lectures, one day, perhaps, a couple of lectures that I did during the pandemic. And then also um, you get our Brothers Karamazov series directly to your podcast feed. So um, that's at the $5. And finally, the $10 and up, we've been releasing these Ask Us Anything videos um, that actually have been kind of fun to do. I don't know how much staying power it has and if our... If our, you know, most generous tiered listeners uh, have any other ideas. Um, but at least for now, with the questions we're getting, we're having fun doing those, too. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for all of your support. It means so much to us. It keeps us going at every level. And we are really thrilled that you have decided to support this community. Thank you. All right, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards, and we're going to talk about something even more controversial, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> at least in cognitive science. Today, we're talking about this uh, article, Why Evolutionary Psychology Should Abandon Modularity. Where do, Was this a neuroskeptic tweet? I think so. Like yeah. I don't like I if I um, I'm 80 percent sure that that's why I put it in the Slack. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, this article is about this debate that's been going on for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years about mod basically the organization of the mind. How is the like, how do we describe the way that the mind is organized? Is it modular? And I'll get to what that is. Or is it not? And there has been sort of this beef between some cognitive psychologists, cognitive scientists, and some evolutionary psychologists who are... Uh, so this article argues talking past each other in this debate. But one reason I want to do it is because you and I, we've never really talked about modularity. And I think it's actually a really fascinating part of the whole, you know, 
question about psychology and how the mind is is organized. And it's something that I've been reading about since I think Paul Bloom first made me not made me suggested that I read Fodor's book Modularity and Mind. And so I just wanted to talk about it. But yeah, you what is your like, how did you come across this? Is this something that in philosophy people talk about? I mean, well, I'm not a philosopher of mind, but I did, you know, I uh, did a lot of philosophy of biology in graduate school. So we're talking year 2000 to 2005. When we met for the first time? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So Cosmides and Tubi. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think of modularity of mind more in, ter- in the evolutionary psych terms as, you know, like the cheater detector. Module right. You actually mentioned the- cheater detection the other day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And like I I feel like that's got to be outdated. So I'm actually excited to learn more about it. Right. Okay, you. cool. So I'm going to try to give like a little I, like a brief background about this whole debate and and where it started. And I will say right now, I, everything I learned, I think I learned first from Paul Bloom in this cognitive science seminar. Um, <laughs> so you're going to just blame him. Just I'm just going to blame him for anything I get wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but okay, so in the history of psychology in the 50s, 60s, behaviorism had really taken hold a lot. And associationistic theories of how the mind is organized were dominant. And what, the, what this meant was that there's, there's theories that say the mind is one thing. It's one big thing. And there are theories that say the mind is a bunch of little things. General process... Uh, behavioristic, associationistic accounts really want to say that the mind is like a general purpose learning machine. And what it does is it builds up associations that it picks up from the environment, but it doesn't require any real specialization. So everything we learn, we learn because it's just a, a modern version of empiricism, right? Versus nativism. Everything we learn is learned through experience. And that experience self like it organizes the mind over time merely through inputs that we're getting from the environment and so the idea is for instance the behaviorists believed that you know either through classical conditioning like pavlovian conditioning or through auburn conditioning like reward and punishment learning the mind could tie two things together and from that we would build up literally everything we know including you know language and all that stuff there's modern incarnations of this that uh, are, are a bit more sophisticated and they say like, we're like Bayesians or whatever, but everything we learn is through statistical learning. We don't really have any specialized uh, learning mechanism. I mean, we don't have any um, super differentiated specialized modules in the mind. What we have is just a general purpose computer. Like it's, it's just a, like a processor that we have up there. Um, Jerry Fodor who made the notion of modularity popular in, 19, in 1983 publishes this book called Modularity of Mind. And in it, he sort of takes these associationistic, you know, monolithic general purpose views of the mind. He takes them to task and he tries to propose a, what he thinks is a better way of understanding how the mind is organized. And he makes an analogy to like organs in the body. So he says, look, the, the mind is composed of a bunch of sub, like subunits, each of those subunits being in charge of just one thing. So you have like a, a visual uh, 
visual processing modules, you have language modules. So Chomsky famously proposed that we have this language acquisition device that, that might be modular. And they all pay attention to only specific information in the environment and process that information alone and then pop out the solution or pop out like the whatever the output is. And so, so organs uh, was one metaphor, but also phrenology, he made an appeal to sort of, he said, he said the central idea of phrenology that we have a bunch of subsystems in the mind that are in charge of different kinds of things. So that got abandoned too quickly. So he, he thought. <laughs> so, okay. So we are in forbidden course territory. This is, <laughs> right. This is, it's probably a source of mockery. That's probably where, where the, the, all of the accusations that evolutionary psychologists are looking for lumps in your skull come from. <laughs> it was literally on the cover of modularity of mind was one of the old uh, phrenology skulls with like every right. area mapped out. Right. No, I've seen Django. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I forgot that I was in Django. Uh, um, yeah, so so uh, here was the central idea that Fodor was trying to promote. He he believed that there were these subroutines, these computational submechanisms that were in charge of only a specific kind of information. They were adapted for, like like they had actually, you know. Uh, evolved evolved exactly that the these modules had evolved to serve a specific function and he appealed to a lot of vision science in this so he he said for instance um when you see a visual illusion like the Mueller liar illusion where you have two lines that are of the same length but they look like they're completely different yeah um, because of the the diagonal lines yeah. Um, or the, the shepherd table illusion where you see two tables that are in different orientation and they look like they're completely different size and shape, but they're actually the same size and shape. He says, take these visual illusions and what your mind is doing, and I keep saying mind instead of brain for a reason, because he's really talking about the level of mind, not the level of brain. Right. He says, um, what's going on is that your visual system is paying attention to key in pieces of information in the environment and it's taking those into account and it's popping out like a perception. It's saying these two tables are different size and shapes or these two lines are of a different length because the information that it's taking into account um, is, you know, these visual illusions are designed to trick you into thinking that things are far apart when they're not or whatever. Um, yeah. And importantly, even when you know yeah. that those two lines are the same exact length, they don't look like they are right right and so they're 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 kind of separated from each other it, like it, the two uh this is what they call informational encapsulation that's right. right like it, it the knowledge from one module can't reach the knowledge from the other that's or right the perception or it, for, yeah your your general beliefs your thoughts your desires um they they can't they can't creep into the little computational process that's going on that's making you see those lines a different length no matter what by the way, like we can post a link to the paper mm-hmm. that were that led to this discussion, and in that they do a visual illusion that I've never seen Isn't before called awesome? Terror Subterra, and it's just this what looks like a big giant chasing like a little giant through uh, a tunnel, and this is such like this is better than Mueller liar to like. Yeah. I cannot see them as anywhere close to the same size. Like no. I've tried to and I can't. 
Yeah, it's it, an amazing it's, it's an amazing illusion. I don't know if I had seen it. If I had seen it, I'd certainly forgotten about it. Yeah. And it's because again, there are there are lines that are converging in the distance that that trick you into thinking that the the one in the back is much farther away, so they you see it as bigger. Um, like Mueller Liar, I can kind of even yeah. though it doesn't look that way, but this one is just like I, like I, I don't believe it. Like I, it can't be the same size. So it's a great example of what they're talking about. Uh, right. These two things not being able to to be in contact with each other, or or to get it to some you know centralized processing, right. uh, information processing uh, yeah. entity. Right. And so for Fodor, this was like super important for for things like visual perception. And in particular, there was an, another set of studies, not the behaviorism stuff, but another source of motivation for Fodor was that in um, the 40s and 50s, there was this work on what, what people have called the new look in perception, um, psychologist named Jerome Bruner, who had argued that your basic perceptions can change as a result of your beliefs and desires. And he did these, these famous studies where he had rich kids and poor kids draw a quarter, like he just a you know twenty five cent American coin, mm-hmm. and um, he found that poor kids drew them to be bigger than rich kids, and what he argued was that this is because you know for poor kids like they actually it was more money like it, it represented right. more, and so they drew them as bigger. In fact, he he did this in a number of different ways, and and. For Fodor, which he says at some point in the precy that he wrote for his book, he says, this thought shook him because if it's true, it would mean that we couldn't agree on the most basic perceptual facts of the world. And he even explicitly says, and I don't want relativism of that sort to be true, so I want this to be true. Right. Right, and in criticisms of the modular view and I don't know what the status of these experiments are, but I remember Jesse Prince talking about it in some talk where the the Mueller liar illusion doesn't work as well for um, like tribal communities that don't live in like right. uh, environments where there are corners, right? And like right angle, yeah. right angle. Yeah, exactly. So that would, I guess. A speak against the modular. Yeah, um, although I've never understood that line of, of attack um, because, you know, maybe it is true. I believe that it's probably true that we need, you know, people who see the Mueller liar in particular relies on the outward turning lines and inward turning lines that look like you're seeing a building from the outside or from yeah. the inside. And so it's providing different information, but like the the one that we're looking at, the Roger Shepard Terra Terror Subterra, mm-hmm. like I'm sorry, I got that. I don't believe that there's going to be any culture that doesn't see, <laughs> right. Doesn't see that. I mean, I don't believe it, but I guess, yeah. and I don't even know what would like because any culture would have access to caves, and <laughs> right. but I guess it, it the the idea of these objections is that culture and environment matter more than what the uh, these accounts can admit, right. Right. I, I think that that a reasonable view might be that in some cases, um, the environment and cultural upbringing make a difference in how we see these things. But in a lot of cases, it's probably not. So, so really, then the debate becomes about what's modular and what's not, like how much of, right. the, of the visual system, for instance, is modular. 
but okay, so so Bruner has all these studies arguing for this new look in perception, basically saying that desires and beliefs, what we would call higher level cognitive processes or central processes, like you, your thinking, your your beliefs, your desires, your wishes, um, that they would influence something as basic as perception. Fodor thought was wrong. And so he was sort of attacking both of those things, like the, the general purpose associationistic view and the new, perce- new look and perception view in proposing this. So for Fodor, he said these little subcomponents, and he didn't even try to say, you know, he relied on visual perception and he said that's probably true for other stuff too. Um, but he really wasn't trying to, to outline how much of the mind would be modular. Right. He was just trying to propose that at least some of it is. He said uh, that these modules would, were like little computational subroutines that were uh, separate from central cognitive functioning, informationally encapsulated, or as some people say, cognitively impenetrable, <laughs> which is hilarious. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, that it would be automatic, so that is you wouldn't notice that it's going on. Like, like right now, we don't, we're not aware of the computations our brain is doing when we see this illusion. That, and that informational encapsulation is what everybody understands to be the central feature of a Fodorian module. So, okay, we have that. So uh, the idea of the modular view of, of the mind, that the, the mind has these mental modules that are domain-specific, meaning that it's like dedicated to vision or, or hearing or language or whatever, um, kind of took fire and... A lot of people in cognitive psychology and in cognitive science in general sort of ran with this idea. So there's a lot of work in visual perception describing the computations that these modules make, right? Exactly how they work. In the intervening years, as evolutionary psychology grew, they also appealed to the concept of a module. And it's unclear to me whether the first evolutionary psychologists to talk this way were explicitly appealing to Fodorian modules or not, but they started referring to all kinds of mental processes as modular. And uh, famously, sort of Pinker's book, uh, How the Mind Works, uh, it's a good example of this. So Pinker has chapters on like love and emotions. He has uh, chapters on morality, uh, and he argues, or he claims, that we can understand all of these processes as modular. And modular here meaning at least the domain-specific, like he, he thinks that your emotions adapted to uh, compute a particular kind of information in the environment, like fear is, is, giving you inf- is, is a response to certain kinds of risks in the environment, and uh, that these happen automatically and quickly, and that they were selected for that that natural selection divided up the mind into a bunch of little things and in those little things inc- are included even like why we argue shit like that like our combativeness is a result of the organization that evolution gave us and this is the like controversial area where it'd be like your attraction to younger women with a certain hip to waist r- ratio or something like that right yeah. or you know even the idea that love is a kind of feeling to get parental investment or something yeah, like that. Yeah, all that stuff. Like, yeah. Or sexual yeah. jealousy in men, yeah. for instance, right? More than women. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. the, the reason that evolutionary psychologists were going for was, look, let's agree that 
biological organisms like humans uh, are the product of natural selection. Okay, like that's, that's step one. Um, this means that whatever the mind is, is a result of natural selection as well. And just sort of logically what you have left is that everything that you can observe in human beings and their biological and mental systems is either an adaptation or it's a byproduct of adaptation or as the authors of this paper say, it's noise. Um, right. And they argued that selective pressures um, would have created a bunch of different systems that really would take into account these different domains of information and problem solve. So they said, look, human beings experienced regular problems enough that the mind in some ways evolved to handle them. And so this is why they talk about the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness and they, they care about, you know, what was going on when we were evolving. And it's almost just like a natural result of the view that the mind was selected for in specific ways that you might think that it's functionally organized and separate in this modular way. Right. So here's an example that people like back when I was learning about this stuff, like the sweet tooth. So in our environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, it was really good to eat berries and things that were sweet. They gave you all sorts of vitamins. And so we developed this uh, module that found sweet things tasty. Right. And then, you know, 200,000 years pass, we still have this module for the sweet tooth, but now it's like, you know, German chocolate cake and <laughs> right. Baskin-Robbins chocolate chip ice cream and all this stuff that's not good for you. But like with the visual illusion where we can't, like even though we know it's not good for us, it still tastes good because this is that informational encapsulation thing where it's like we can't uh, affect our, our knowledge of nutrition uh, right. or whatever our doctor tells us can't affect the fact that that tastes fucking good right. and you want more of it. And even though it's not adaptive, the way to understand that is to understand that the environment was different That's right. back, back in the day. That's exactly right. Yeah. So things like aggression... Um, yeah. You know, if if you can tell the story of ancestors who were more likely to survive because they aggressed against people who did them wrong, then right. uh, you have a system like this, the system that would have favored aggression. And just by what it means to say you have a system that favored aggression, they're referring to this as modular. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my favorite sponsors, Chess.com. Uh, everybody's playing chess these days. Why wouldn't you? Um, and especially on chess.com, their numbers have grown five times since 2020. The pandemic has been good to them and it's been good to me and well, not the pandemic actually. <laughs> chess, <laughs> chess.com has been good. You're to not me. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, or like pharmaceutical. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's free. It's easy to play. You can play your friends. You can play your family. You can play strangers. Um, lately, I've been playing some listeners. Uh, I, I can't play all of them. I get a bunch of challenges usually usually now every day, but I try to play when I can. Uh, 
And improving your chess game is easy on chess.com. After you play your game, I do this all the time. You have a computer go through, tell you when you are a bonehead, tell you when you made a great move, tell you when you made a, uh, the best move or what move would have been better, and you can play out the game if you had played the better world and like this hypothetical possible world where you had played the better move. Are you sure you're not feeding the AIs so that eventually they become smarter than us? <laughs> I think I... <laughs> I think I probably am, I, uh, except that uh, if they look at my games, they'll just become <laughs> too dumb to take over the world. So, so that's good. So I'm doing my part to stop the existential threat of AI. I have a diamond membership at chess.com, um, which gives me unlimited puzzles. Oh, I haven't even talked about the puzzles. They have over 50,000 chess puzzles, which is good because I've done almost that many. Um, unlimited lessons, unlimited game analysis, and more. And I absolutely love it. And I've been doing it for f over 15 years. Um, so check out uh, chess.com. They have speed games, low pressure, fun games. Um, you can play on your phone, on your iPad, on your computer, all your devices. And yeah, just do it. Join up. Um, improve your chess game, head over to chess.com slash very bad. Um, just chess.com slash very bad. No wizards at the end. And start playing. That's chess.com slash very bad to start playing your friends, your family, and learning how to play chess today. Thank you to chess.com for sponsoring this episode. Now, at this point is where I was introduced to this whole debate. And I yeah. have to admit, one of the reasons, so one of the reasons that I really like this paper is that it kind of set me straight about this debate because I would read evolutionary psychologists like Tubian Cosmides and Rob Kurzban who would talk about things like emotions being modules. And it never made sense to me. I thought it was profoundly dumb to say that because an emotion of all things is open to information from your central processing, right? Like my emotions change all the time depending on what I believe and what I right. know. Like it's almost like ridiculous to think that they would be informationally encapsulated. And then they would say, no, no, we didn't mean, we don't mean a Fedorian module. Like we don't mean an informationally encapsulated module. And I would say, well, then why the fuck are you using the word module, right? Because this is what a module means. Fodor is the one who like made this shit what it is. And, but wait, yeah. I want to understand your objection before yeah. we get to like how the levels of analysis yeah. are different. Because while emotions are certainly open to being revised in light of information from central processing, there are certain things like jealousy, one might argue, or, you know, just an uh, like a feeling of outrage and resentment and aggression if you're insulted or disrespected or certain things that... Like there, it's 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 much at least harder for whatever information to uh, to break through your just natural reaction right. to those things, or just loving your child. You know, like there's not that much information that's going to make you not love Bella. Right. You know. Right. Okay. Good. This. So, it turned to me on the understanding of what information like central cognitive information is so for me the knowledge that your wife 
Jen is cheating on you is what caused your jealousy. If you were to change that belief. Wait, time out. What, what do you know? <laughs> what do you know you that just, I don't? I thought you had, I thought that compersion, I thought the natural selection <laughs> had given us compersion by now. No, yeah. that's, I didn't evolve compersion. <laughs> so. Uh, wouldn't it be funny if different people had different evolutionary sort of like. <laughs> um, like the, trees. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, sorry, I just realized we lapsed right into racism with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're trying to get on to the forbidden 2022 <laughs> forbidden courses. I want a guest spot yeah. for like a hundred thousand dollars. So, so for me, that was central. Like that, that kind of information is what I was thinking. Not, not to mention that you can also regulate your emotions with something more willful, but, but even just the like knowledge that, you know, people who, if, if, you know, maybe now would be too late, but you can imagine that you have a baby and you're like, oh my God, I love it. And then somebody says, DNA test shows it's not yours. And you'd be like, fuck it, I'm out. Um, yeah. That kind of information is, is a belief in in the way that, that I would consider a top-down or a cognitive penetration of, of the modular system. So, and I remember arguing with Rob Kurzban about this stuff and, and not understanding how, like, why they were even appealing to modules and and pinker the same so pinker writes this book how the mind works right and and um, other people uh, were at at the time also proposing this sort of massive modular account of the mind and uh fodor hated it so fodor <laughs> fodor says look man i was talking about like maybe a handful of sub like of more basic cognitive faculties like uh perception Right. Um, maybe language, whatever. Not this shit that Pinker's talking about. That like love is modular. That doesn't. That didn't even make sense to him. Right. And so he he writes a book called. So Pinker's book was How the Mind Works. Fodor published a book called Literally The Mind Doesn't Work That Way. Right. Which is petty and awesome at the same time. I guess. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of Fodor, petty yeah, and right. awesome at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So so uh, so the debates the debate started there and. This paper that that we're at now, that why evolutionary psychology should abandon modularity, is an attempt to offer a way out of this debate. Um, so what the authors are trying to argue broadly is that w- the reason that evolutionary psychologists and sort of Fedorian cognitive scientists, um, the reason that they're gr- disagreeing so bitterly is because they've been talking about two completely different kinds of processes, two different levels of analysis. So we can get into that. But like at this point, is the explanation yeah. about modules enough? Yes, very, very much so. Okay. That was, that was oh, outstanding. Thank you. A little bit of history of, of science too. So when I went to grad school, Paul Bloom had just arrived and Frank Kyle had been there. Sorry, Paul Bloom arrived like my second year. Frank Kyle arrived my first year maybe. And they, they were hiring people. They hired a cognitive um, psychologist named Brian Scholl who does visual stuff. Oh, yeah, I know him. So he's actually like a big, his advisor was this big guy in visual perception, and they full on were of the modular view. This view is, as I mentioned before, deeply tied to nativism, right? So you are born with these modules as opposed to the associationistic views. And so I was sort of instructed by Frank Kyle and Paul Bloom, hardcore nativists, can you just say briefly, if that's possible, like what that means? What nativism nativist? means? Yeah. yeah. So uh, 
uh, people like Paul Bloom and Frank Kyle believe that infants are born with all sorts of concepts already baked into the brain, into the mind. It's a concept of numeracy. Um, you know, Paul even at one point was arguing that that basic moral perceptions about like good and bad that these were you're you're just born with them and they unfold, but they're there. M- meanwhile, there's like a whole different brand of cognitive science. Say like so, MIT was always like the Chomsky and those guys were always associated associated with nativism. And over at UC San Diego, you had like this the hotbed of a rebirth of empiricism, and never the twain would meet. Like they they actually just beefed with each other a lot. So so the so what would be a debate that they would have like like language language debate? is a hotbed of this. So right. is language the result of a dedicated computational process? So Chomsky argued, of course, because if you look at how quickly children acquire language and you look at how much input they've had, there is no way that they could have just acquired this by rote, like brute learning. He thought that the brain was obviously uh, uh, biased toward picking up grammar. And he thought that the rules of grammar were in the mind already. And And then other people who study language learning thought, no, the same way that you learn whatever is how you learn language. And it might not be through reward and punishment like Skinner thought, but it's just through statistical learning. And so they would do computational models trying to show that um, children by the time, whatever their age two, have been able to acquire the rules of grammar. Um, it's not necessary to argue that, that the rules had to be in there because there's plenty enough information so a general system like statistical learning that results in all knowledge, it was in charge of language. Right? So, that, so the yeah. fact that children can so much more easily learn language than adults, like which side does that favor or can both uh, sides explain that equally well enough? That's a good question. I think both sides can explain it in a different way. So the people who appeal to the general learning mechanisms like statistical learning um, would appeal to the plasticity of the brain just being, it's just more malleable early in life. And right. I think that, peop- you know, the, the, then you have these people who believe that there are these critical periods that, that I think are more likely to be the nativists, that, that the modules are a- extra sensitive early in life. Um, <laughs> right. <but> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. And, and where is Fodor on that? So Fodor, because I, yeah. Yeah. I think Fodor believed that language wasn't it. I think he was, he was buddy buddy with Chomsky. Yeah. Chomsky. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, Pinker and Paul Bloom had an argument with Chomsky. They had a debate with Chomsky. And one of Paul's early publications was an attack on Chomsky, not because they disagreed about the modularity. They were all on the same side in terms of nativism and modularity. Chomsky just believed that language module was a complete accident. It was just a blip and that it unlocked this thing. And I see. Pinker and right. Bloom believed that there would have been selective pressures to create a language module. But but Fodor did really jump ship when it came to modules for beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. He thought he thought it was an an abuse of his his view that yeah. that it was uh, t- you know taking what he said and misapplying it. He, he, he was really opposed to, to using the concept of modules to explain really any social behavior or m- social life, um, but most higher level things. He's like, no, like we have a, we also have a central processor, you know, like our, our, 
when we think and right. we reason, that's not it's not modular at all. So philo- our philosophical brain is <laughs> right, not right. modular. It's just our like except for maybe trolley problems. Those are obviously modular and selected Clearly. for. <laughs> well, you know, t- when we encountered trolley switches in the environment of early adaptiveness. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the thing. It was it wasn't adaptive to right. switch. Or it was adaptive. It was adaptive to switch. It wasn't adaptive to push, I guess. It wasn't adaptive to push because, you know, like overweight people are more likely to have like aggressive family members that will come and get revenge. <laughs> they would have beat your ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could. I love that explanation. <laughs> the intuition is weak. They're all sugared up, those people. <laughs> That's why the intuition is weaker if you describe him as a man wearing a big backpack. <laughs> I could probably take him. I could probably take his relatives. Uh, that, that's I bet you somebody has proposed that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So, so say why they're talking past each other because of different levels of analysis. Yeah. So this paper tries to demonstrate that they've this whole time this debate has been just a confusion about levels of analysis. So in in order to do that they present, I guess, this distinction in levels of explanation for the mind that they borrow from Dennett and somebody named Marr, who I don't know. And they say there are three different ways that are not necessarily inconsistent with each other that you would describe uh, something like mental life or psychology. But by the way, did you find this paper to be a little bit, a little bit exaggerating? Did you, yeah. There, Although it was hard to pin down exactly why. They were like saying this is perhaps been the biggest setback in all of psychology, um, even I more know. than the replication crisis. <laughs> this has this has set back like. The <laughs> I'm such a good audience, though, for like methodological fuck ups, like <laughs> right. being like responsible for like I am just I want this. You know? good, yeah. like, take me. Yeah. yeah. Ravage <laughs> me with your like methodological <laughs> criticism. Um, OK, so. Three levels of analysis. Um, they say there's the intentional level, the functional level, and the implementational level. The intentional level, I think a lot of people know about this, the intentional stance that Dan Dennett talks about, where when you're describing, say, why did Tamler say that, you appeal to belief, desire, psychology. You say Tamler wanted to do that. He thought this. He believed it. That intentional level is, to quote the paper, by the way, I didn't even say the name, David Petrozhowski. I'm sorry. And Annie Verts um, are the authors. Um, that intentional level is so they say this level also contains the first person phenomenology of how things feel and includes mental states such as emotions, beliefs, thoughts, desires, and so on. So you can have a whole sort of theory of causality that appeals to intentions and desires. And it makes sense to say, you know, why did I drop this because I wanted to? It's not wrong to say that, it's just a very high level of description. And it's also like uh, knowing a little bit about this, the Dennett stuff on this. It's like how we sometimes successfully, sometimes not, what we use to predict people's behavior is to kind of think, well, this is what they believe. This is what they want. And so I think they'll do this. Yep. And we're just talking about their psychology as we understand our own psychology. That's how I understand how I act is, you know, I want to take an edible so that I will find succession even funnier, <laughs> you know, or whatever, yeah. or curb, 
you know, so like now, obviously this isn't true all the time, but we understand ourselves as acting according, you know, at this level. And so we assume that other people are going to act like that and we, and we can understand it. Right. And they have like causal, you know, that this has some sort of causal influence on, on like their motor movements, right? When you go get your edible, um, your, your arms moving are a result of you wanting to get that edible. Um, Right. uh, Yeah. It's like folk psychology. Um, and it would be folk psychology. Yeah, and it would be weird to say, no, Tendler didn't take the edible because he wanted to. He took the edible because, you know, his hippocampus was firing in this particular way, right? You'd be like, well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure. <laughs> like we always say, like I'm sure the brain did it, but yeah. You know what's so funny is that I, I was just lecturing on Plato's dialogue, the Phaedo, and he makes this exact point. Like he he makes this distinction between levels of explanation huh. and analysis. He says if somebody wants to know, the Phaedo is when he's about to die, and he's you know like it's it's the dialogue that takes place right before he drinks the hemlock mm-hmm. and it ends with him drinking the hemlock mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. And he says if somebody wants to know like why I'm here in this prison cell about to drink the hemlock, and they start talking about like my bones and sinews and like flesh, like that won't. That's just not, that's not going to answer the question. Right. The thing that answers the question is the Athenian jury thought it best for me to be sentenced to this. And I thought it best not to escape. And so that's why I'm here. So it's like already then there was this idea that there are different levels of explanation and some are more suitable to tell you what you want to know. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, the, the authors in this paper say, you, we're talking about modularity, but we think this is a deep problem in all of psychology. And when, when you think about it, this is the complaint that we've often made when people talk about neuroscience and they right. say, well, your brain exactly. did it. And you're like, well... Like that right. doesn't supervene on the fact that I wanted to do it. Like it doesn't. Right. Just, and that's true of literally everything that I do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not that insightful <laughs> unless you want to yeah. know about the brain. And It doesn't actually explain what. It, <laughs> right. And the attitude that it somehow is a better explanation or the more scientific explanation is a silly one. It's just a different. It's a different explanation. It's just different levels of explanation. Yeah. There are questions that it would be appropriate right. to invoke that. But. Yes, this kind of confusion happens a lot. Right. So how is that happening here? So then it's, it's important for this, when we get back to why this is a problem, that the, in, the intentional stance holds the agent as central, the I. The, yeah. the, the agent is, is what's understood to be experiencing what their brain is doing, all that stuff. Because uh, we'll get back to that. So that if you pop down one level you get to what they call the functional level of analysis. The functional level of analysis, I guess maybe named after functionalism of some sort, is still a layer of abstraction. It's not your brain cells firing, but it is a description of all of the subsystems that make who you are. So um, here is where you would include, you know, you have, there is some part of your brain that's responsible for long-term memory, some part for uh, short-term memory, um, but that, the brain parts don't matter as nearly as much as the fact that there is this level that we call short-term memory, long-term memory. You have describing what's going on in the brain as computational, like inputs and outputs. Like, let me ask you about this yeah. because uh, according to the authors, this corresponds to what Dennett called the design stance, right. which I understood as like, this is what this mechanism is for. 
Like, this is why it exists, is so it can do this kind of things. Is that right? Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't remember how Dennett talks about it, but it seems to make sense because what I think they're saying is that you can view the mind as, as a whole bunch of these sub-processes that were probably selected for. And right. you can explain all of those in terms of inputs, outputs. You say like, okay, you get this visual stimuli, you have um, this output. So at this sort of computational layer, this abstraction at the level of computation, where if you ask somebody about like, well, where, but where is Tamler? Like you've just described to me like the 50 uh, kinds of mechanisms that make up a mind. Which one of those is Tamler? You would say, well, that doesn't make any sense because they, they're all Tamler. But, right. but we're not talking about Tamler. We're talking about like the how the mind is computing inputs and outputs. But so like let's say whatever the mechanism is that if I put my hand in the fire will get me to immediately remove my body will immediately remove my hand from the fire is the proper functional level of analysis here. Like we have some sort of module that gets us to uh, – find aversive things that will do right. damage to that's our right. body. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. That's the, that's the way to say it. Um, yeah. And in that sense, it can be called the design stance without, you know, it's not it's not necessarily designed uh, by nat natural selection, although, like, it seems plausible in right. a lot of these cases that that's why. Right. Yeah. You know, it's important to note that these, I think these people are evolutionary, like, people. So so I mm -hmm. think that, if anything, they're going to be biased to saying that that these are designed, I mean, sorry, that these are selected for. So, okay, the quote, so they say this, yeah, this level corresponds to what Dennett has called the design stance and encompasses both of Mars' computational and algorithmic and representational levels. Causation at this level occurs because of the particular constellation of functions being carried out across different mechanisms and the abstract, if-then, causal relationships between mechanisms. And so I remember as a grad, I'm sorry, as an undergrad in psychology, when I learned about Chomsky's view of the, what he called the language acquisition device, um... I remember asking, so is that like a brain? Is that a part of the brain? And the answer was, well, that doesn't really matter. What matters is that it's a computational system, right? Right. Um, and it, you could imagine, and I think this is maybe why they call it the functional level of analysis, you could imagine a system doing the same exact thing with the information of input and output, but being you know, silicon-based, like a computer. It could be instantiated in any of a number of ways. What matters is the computation. In your rectum. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an easy crowd. Um, <laughs> okay, so the I doesn't make any sense here. There, nobody's talking about like the intentional stance. Finally, the last one is just the physical stance. There, where you're actually talking about the physical instanti instantiation, like the neurons, the neurons, the networks of neurons. You know, the molecules that make up the neurons. Um, the, you know, the electrochemical processes that are firing in the brain. That is the bottom level that is the 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 most basic level of analysis so hopefully it makes it clear that talking you can talk about any given psychological process in any of these three ways and not be inconsistent okay so here now now we have the tools to understand what's going on according to these authors which I, i'm convinced by they say the reason that these two camps have been fighting with each other for the last 20 or whatever years or 30 years is that they've been actually using different levels of analysis and not realizing it or never making it explicit. And they think, again, that this is actually a problem in a lot of debates in psychology. And so here's, here's the insight, which I actually 
really, I felt like I learned from this insight. When Fodor describes modularity in the Fodorian sense, where he says that there is no top-down influence, there is no um, uh, cognitive penetrability, beliefs and desires can't change your visual perception um, of the visual illusion. It is using the intentional stance. And it's, it sounds like he's only at the functional level. Like I would have said, oh, it's the functional level because it's a bunch of different systems that he's talking about. But it doesn't make sense to say that you don't have influence from your central cognitive processing or your beliefs and desires unless you're appealing to the intentional stance, to the I. When I say, when I, say I believe that coins are bigger and therefore I see them as bigger, that is absolutely referring to uh, the I level. Right. So there's something about even saying, I can't get myself to see the two people chasing each other as the same size, that it just is intentional. Exactly. Exactly. Essentially. Exactly. And, and that, um, that's that great way to put it. I can't get myself to see it this way is the only way that Fedorian modularity of this encapsulated way makes any sense. Because Fodor was literally just saying, I can't change the way that my visual system works. Right, right, right. I mean, I guess, right. So, so are you saying then that the central, just the whole idea of a central intelligence yes. processing kind of pr- can only make sense in, uh, from the intentional stance perspective? Because, because of what he means by central processing, because what yeah. he's including in what he calls whatever central processing is your beliefs and your desires those those just are um the things that that we would uh, how we would describe something in the intentional way um because your systems don't have beliefs right you know right 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 you have beliefs right so if you're talking about your computer it wouldn't make sense to say your computer can't uh, see this thing exactly. like you would just talk about the different systems and that's you're, right you're already kind of at the functional level unless you're speaking yeah I guess like metaphorically right. or something like that, no, that that's a, we're not as naturally inclined to do that with computers as we are that's right that's a great that's actually a great example I was trying to figure out like how to explain this part which is in the computer example um, to say that your computer can't tell whatever, how the graphics are being processed is just a weird thing to say. Obviously, yeah. part of your computer is processing the graphics and part of it is like whatever in charge of other background processes and part. And so it, it just, it makes no sense to d- divide up the computer into the, the central and then the other stuff. And right. the whole notion of top-down influence or, or sorry, informational encapsulation doesn't make sense if we're popping down into the functional level. So it doesn't make sense to say, the graphics processor of your computer is informationally encapsulated because you would just say from what like the graphics processor is is doing what it's supposed to do the other thing is doing what it's supposed to do the notion of encapsulation doesn't make sense because you have to be encapsulated from something and the inputs and outputs of all those systems are just the inputs and outputs of the system so if i said but yeah can't they be encapsulated from each other from the different like other things that a computer can do, like yes. the display. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. They they could have 
now Im imagine that you have like the graphics system and that you have i don't know let's i'm you know shit about computers to say this but let's say that the audio system yeah the audio good so you have the graphics processor and you have the audio processor and they're taking different inputs you could say that one is informationally encapsulated from the other but it doesn't do much work because all that they've done is program the visual system, uh, the the graphic system to take this information, and program the audio system to take that information, and the notion of encapsulation doesn't help much above and beyond inputs and outputs. You just describe right. what's feeding in, what's feeding into the graphics card, what's feeding into the audio card. There's the whole, and that's 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 the insight. That's the insight. Oh, that's interesting. It's, yeah, it's that it does you no good to describe the functional layer in terms of encapsulation. And that is what they say evolutionary psychologists have been saying this whole time. They've been saying the, that's the reason that we don't, we don't use the term module in the Fedorian sense, because they believe that they are talking at the functional layer of all these systems that have evolved. And so there's no real argument between these two. It's just they've talked talk past each other. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash VBW. Tamler, do you think that they'll finally let us do couples counseling, even if we're not really go? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, we definitely We should try it. to sign up. We you know, yeah. we have a coupon code. We should really go on and see if they'll they'll talk. <laughs> to us. We have a lot to iron out, though. <laughs> yeah. Um but you know, maybe you have a similar relationship in your life. Just people who <laughs> who you're completely dependent on but sometimes get get Just under your skin um, don't get along with at all <laughs> if you do you should try better help better help is customized online therapy they offer video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to it's the the ultimate in pandemic therapy it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. These are licensed professionals who are there to help you out. And importantly, I think people really need to know this. If you don't like the therapist that you have, uh, you can always switch. Ask them to switch. You know, It's, it's not always going to be a great fit, but you don't have to stick with them. So unload your stressors in life. Get some unbiased feedback. You'll be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. So see if it's for you. This podcast, again, is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month if they go to betterhelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW, and you'll get 10% off your first month. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Okay, I have a couple questions yeah. about this. I, like, I, I feel like I get it blurrily. Right. So something like how would you apply this to something like the debate over the cheater detection module, say? Yeah. Are evolutionary psychologists saying that cheater detection module is just at the f like functional level and the people who are saying this is bullshit, this is uh, like, like how, yeah. how does this explain, say, that? Good. Debate? So, so like we can appeal to my what I would have said before reading this article, which is yeah. what I said about emotions, which is. How are you going to tell me that the cheater detection module is a module when obviously, um, you know, in some of those tasks where you're trying to detect the cheaters, you're like effortfully trying to figure it out. Um, yeah. That's to me how that's not modular, right? There's, there is no informational encapsulation. And so 
what they would say is what we mean is that there were selective pressures to make a subsystem that's really good at taking this particular information and then outputting this particular information. And right. uh, there is no central you or I because it's all just subsystems. They believe all of the mind is like that. So you have a memory system, you have a cheater detection system, you have whatever the emotion, all of those systems work in tandem to make you, but uh, to, to rely on, again, the notion of encapsulation would mean that the evolutionary psychologists are popping into the intentional level and saying that, that evolution gave us an I and that, and that that's at the same level right. as the cheater detection module. Right. That's okay. And I think the reason why this is so hard for us to understand is it's not like we think of ourselves as eyes. And so even just thinking about something like a cheater detection, it's hard to think about that. Right. Like if you're not you, it's hard to think about whether you would, you know, be able to spot the, you know, person that's drinking at a bar (laughs) that's not 21 or whatever. um, Because like that's the whole point yeah is that you can do it you know like and, and so it and it yeah. makes sense uh, why it wouldn't be that difficult to understand visual perception like i kind of get that that that's right. a module but when you get to emotions they're they're even the way we talk about say emotions is so right. intentional when we say i felt this right um that it doesn't even make it yeah it's hard to even make sense right. of what it means if you're not at the intentional right. and so what they but what they really are talking about is no what we what we mean is that um early humans had enough encounters with like uh re, in risky situations with a predator or with heights that this system evolved to get triggered and and uh you know kick in a fight or flight response when that information is processed from the environment and you know what you are just all of those processes that we're describing. That's not, there's no you, like it doesn't make sense to talk about you. You are just a bunch of subroutines at some level, right? It, we're all a bunch of subroutines anyway. Sure. Yeah. But it's, I guess I'm wondering though, then whether e- even just the interest in evolutionary psychology almost presumes a kind of intentional stance view in the sense that like, I don't know, like, uh, this is hard for me to describe, but when you just said that, it's, you know, if you're going to talk about, you know, emotions and cheater detection and these things that we just naturally associate with I in these other terms, then why is this just different than people who are working on, you know, uh, the mechanistic level, neuronal, like, visual processing stuff that that doesn't strike me as counterintuitive or controversial, but it's just like under the hood stuff yeah. that isn't, uh, that, that I can't connect with because for me to connect with something, I have to think of me. Uh, and, and for me to even be like fully satisfied with an explanation, I have to think about it right. intentionally. I think you're, you're pointing to something that I hadn't thought about, which, which uh, the authors don't, don't talk about. Again, because I think they're sort of, they lean toward the evolutionary psychology functional view. So the, the computational theory of mind is what's underlying all this, that you have this non-physical but computational layer of stuff that's going on. I think that you're, what you're pointing to is that they're sort of bastardizing the concepts of emotions and whatever in right. only saying that they're at the functional level. 
the subjective experience of emotion that there is an eye that's experiencing the emotion seems so central to our lay understanding. The concept. Yeah. Yeah. That that it's hard to just think about the computational layer. They really do want to though. They want to say, no, we don't mean the like subjective, you know, that I felt jealousy. We meant that you got this input from the environment and that this, you know, that it produced this output. Um, you, sorry, that, that that's just a subsystem in your brain. They don't want to appeal at all to that intentional layer. Um, but then it's like, are you explaining anger then? Or are you just saying ones and zeros here and ones and zeros there? They think like, that, I think that they think that they're explaining whatever it might be, you know, cheater detection or, or anger. I think that they think that they're pointing to the computations that are going on so much like in the in the Mueller liar illusion or in these these other size illusions where um, the input is the parallel lines meeting converging in the distance that produce this illusion they just want to use that same language to say thinking about your when men think about their wives fucking another guy they this response kicks in and that response yeah. leads to certain kinds of behaviors, like keeping them away from other men so they won't get cuckolded. So while there is the I that's doing it, they don't care. They, to them, it's just like, well, this is just the system that's in charge of, of preventing cuckoldry. And that was the system that was in charge of distance perception. I, I, I don't right. buy, like, I'm, I have trouble right. with it too. Like, I don't like this way of talking about emotions. I, I don't think it, it, I don't think it's, adding too much i think it's just describing um but i think that that they just want it all and this hence the massive modularity they have they want they want it all to be modular i guess the 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 like it reminds me then of the plato thing are they just telling like the you know bones and sinews and like the whole cheater detection idea only makes sense in light of the intentional stance as as opposed to it just I, I guess though you could talk about it in terms of you know like just sets of behaviors like i guess you can talk about it in terms of input outputs but to even start using terms like cheater detection or jealousy or something like that at a, at a certain like for some of these things you're just presuming that there is a detector or a, a, a somebody who's jealous Right, like well, in our in our language, it's hard to talk about. Yeah, it. yeah, it yeah. is hard to talk about it. Um, so here's, uh, I was just thinking of maybe a way to say it. So, so when I hear, so remember that crazy article we read about like sperm detection from oral sex, right? <laughs> yeah. So like they're saying, okay, there's a system that like when cum is tasted, it kicks in a desire to keep your you know whatever your partner around because because you don't want them to like. See, I can't even say it without a. So you're going to go to town. Yeah. Uh, like, so yeah. I think I say, um, well, that's that's a crazy explanation. Like, the reason that maybe I would not want my partner to talk to a, an attractive guy is because I personally don't want them to leave me. Like right. that's the way I think about it, and I think that maybe a lot of these emotional mechanisms are best thought of as that. Just uh, I have reasons, and so so. You, I might say you're confusing that there is a general purpose central processing unit that is just doing things like figuring out what the, like how the world works and what I want and what I don't. And what I don't want is for my wife to leave me. So if I think, if I believe that she might leave me, 
I will have a reason to do this thing. And they're talking about it in terms of these subsystems. So what they say is, well, yeah, but even you're talking about your beliefs <laughs> and desires about your, your wife is, is missing the point. What we're saying is that the thing that is the thing that is giving you your beliefs and desires about this situation is this mechanism that was selected for. We're saying the tongue <laughs> module is going to be like it's the come the come taste module. The tongue, the, it, yeah, the it, it's a fact actually that if you put, if you put a little bit of cum on a baby's module. tongue, they immediately know that right. they're being cuckolded. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Did you were you able to understand their example of uh, the modularity mistake? The Barrett, uh, I guess Lisa Feldman Barrett and Kurzban with uh, Chayap and Gardner, like because I had tr- trouble figuring that out um, as how this was a a great illustration of this talking past each other. Uh, which one? So it's on page sixteen. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. Um, this is an exchange between yeah the, the evolutionary people and the and the Fodorian people, and the Fodorian people being being uh, Chiap and Gardner, and Gardner. Yeah. yeah, um, where they say when you're talking about I don't remember what they're talking about here. Um, so I haven't used this phrase, but system the, one system yeah. Two stuff. Um, so they're saying like the discussion we just had about about whatever detecting that your wife is cheating on you or whatever. Um, you could say, well, no, what you're confusing is system one, system two stuff. So system one might be automatic stuff that could be described as modular, but you have system two, which is your general reasoning, right? You have, you have uh, the ability to think hard about something and decide whether or not you, I don't know, want to take the action. And so maybe what you're calling modules is just an example of system one stuff, that fast automatic stuff that maybe it's a heuristic, maybe whatever, it's like a computation that's being done automatically. For the evolutionary people, system one, system two doesn't make any sense in the same way that general cognition and Fedorian modules don't make sense. For them, like system two, like system two really is kind of an intentional stance. It's effortful, is appealing right. to thinking hard and trying and like deliberating that is directly appealing to the eye. So they would just say, no, like, all you're describing is different modules. There's like a, uh, maybe there's a reasoning module. There's a. Right, 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 right. And just to talk about system two presumes yes. this central I. Right. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the, a lot of the, this, this example of t- levels of analysis sort of explains why there's a lot of brain people and cognitive psych people who hate system one, system two. And they, their critique is usually something like, there is there is no system one in the brain, right? right? Or there, you know, system two is a whole bunch of things. What they don't realize is they're just popping up. Like when people talk about system two, system one, it's just popping up a layer of abstraction, right? It's not really saying anything about the brain. No, none of those people think they're saying anything about the brain. Um, well, they shouldn't at least. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So here's maybe something that will help about the the. The evolutionary psychology thing. Evolutionary psychology proposes that an entire bounded computer exists for each problem that the mind is designed to solve. And every problem has a design solution for them. Right. But that's 
seems implausible, right? Or not? Well, it's implausible in uh, maybe in some sense, but not in the sense that they want to appeal to, which is, are you saying, and I've had conversations with Rob Kurzban, I remember that frustrated me because he would say, are you saying that somehow natural selection didn't produce the mind? And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But it's not like a every problem solved. Like it's not a yeah, solution for yeah. every problem, it's, right? Like there's got to be some stuff that you have to, it's just collateral damage or it's a byproduct. Yeah, no, it, it could like, be a byproduct. Like, sorry, that, that whatever, natural selection just caused everything in some way or another. And so I, this quote is entire bounded computer exists for each problem that the mind is designed to solve. And I suppose that there are things that the mind isn't designed to solve, but that could by mistake. Um, but they, yeah, they're very, very wed to this idea that it's all functional adaptation. These are all functional systems. All right. Interesting. Like, I think I get it. it. It is a very elusive thing. And I think the reason why it's elusive is because we so naturally are just kind of magnetically drawn to seeing this in terms of like intentional stance terms. Yeah. And so when you're telling us not to do that, it's very hard to get our minds around it. That's right. Like that's my, and I think yeah. that the difficulty that we're having is, I think, you know, if they're right in this analysis, this is the difficulty that everybody's been having. You right. know? <laughs> and this is why there's a lot of, like, right. yeah. Careers have been made and uh, on this difficulty, right. like just kind of not noticing that's it. That's right. Yeah. For um, I just want to read this, like I'm going to conclude with this as they conclude. Confusing or collapsing across different levels of analysis is not just a problem for modularity and evolutionary psychology. Rather, it is the greatest problem facing early 21st century psychology, dwarfing even the current replication crisis. <laughs> I would argue it's the greatest problem facing like humanity <laughs> right now. <laughs> It's like the greatest problem like civilization has ever faced, like besides wokeness. Only somebody were brave enough to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we're, this is just a taste of what you'll, <laughs> what you'll learn. No, we're going to like this. Is a teaser. We're going to start like our own forbidden. Course. We're going to start our own university with for, <laughs> forbidden topics, but the forbidden topics will be very, very different. <laughs> very bad wizards university. <laughs> Uh, you know what? Like we couldn't wait for the cavalry to come. <laughs> so we are the cavalry. Yeah. All right. Well, join us next time for another fearless, uh, ideologically free exploration of uh, of, of another topic. Yeah, of some some other minutia of <laughs> the field. <laughs> Uh, we're gonna take apart the type token distinction next time dare us <laughs> oh, dare us shit <laughs> oh no don't go <laughs> get the sub stack ready uh, join us next time Just a very bad wizard.